0: Appreciate it, Josh. Thanks a lot. Thank y'all for putting up with me today. Um, I don't know, for those of you who haven't grown up in church world, there's a little bit of a protocol whenever a guest speaker hops up to start teaching unexpectedly, and that is, that is customary to do this. You want to surreptitiously scan the room to see where the lead pastor is, okay? Lead pastor you're looking for, let's see. Is this man? This man. Yes, Phil Vaughn. You want to look around to see where is Phil? You don't need to panic. Where's Phil? Where's Phil? What happened? What's wrong? You don't need to do that. Okay, you can just do this calmly and on the sly. If you're a couple, one of you can look this way, one of you can look the other way, and then you can report. I don't see him. you see him? I don't see him. And where the pastor is in the room, often can tell you something. He might be telling you something about your guest speaker. For example, if your pastor is sitting down front and he's smiling, what he's telling you is, I am so excited about today's guest speaker. I am thrilled that this person was available and willing to come and speak for our church today. I can't wait to see the blessings God is gonna shower from his word through this person on our whole congregation. I'm just tickled pink. I'm so ready for this. That's if the pastor is on the front row. If you don't see the pastor on the front row, you might want to check the sound booth. If the pastor is in the sound booth, what he might be telling you is, I don't feel great about this. Maybe I got roped into this. Maybe somebody called in a favor or I'm getting blackmailed to have this person speak today. But anyway, I want to put some distance between myself and the guest speaker, and if this goes completely off the rails, I'll grab a hand mic, I'll close in prayer, dismiss, and we'll pretend the whole thing never happened. That's if he's in the sound booth. Now if you've scanned the room, as I know all of you have, and you have not seen the lead pastor anywhere in the room, what he could be telling you is, you know what, I trust this guest speaker, feel good about this, feel like the congregation is in good hands, this person will handle God's word appropriately. And frankly, I don't feel like I'm going to miss all that much if I'm not there. (laughs) Okay, so Phil Vaughn, brother, friend, pastor, is not in this room today. Make of that what you will. All right. Show of hands, please. How many of you are familiar with the sometimes dangerous chemical compound dihydrogen monoxide? Please raise your hand if you know what that is. Dihydrogen monoxide. Yeah, you asked me about it before the service started. You're a very educated young man. Dihydrogen monoxide becomes a problem uh, every several years. In fact, there's sometimes a panic about it. it, it it's this, this thing, this, this real chemical, not making this up. And most notably, several years ago, Nathan Zoner, I was a freshman at the time at Eagle Rock High in, in, in Idaho, won first prize at the Greater Idaho Falls Science Fair of a project he did about dihydrogen monoxide, or uh, DMHO. And what he did in this project is he urged uh, fellow students at his high school to sign a petition uh, urging for the banning, or at least strict controlling, of this chemical for plenty of good reasons. Dihydrogen monoxide can cause excessive perspiration and vomiting. It's a major component in acid rain. It contributes to erosion. It can cause severe burns in its gaseous state, and accidental inhalation, even a little bit, can kill you. Nathan asked 50 of his peers if they supported a ban on the chemical dihydrogen monoxide. 43 of them said, yes, dihydrogen monoxide should be banned. Six of them were undecided. And one of them, only one of them, knew that dihydrogen monoxide it's a fancy chemist's name for what? Water. <laughs> dihydrogen H2, monoxide 1 oh, H2O, dihydrogen monoxide. And you think, well, okay, maybe a bunch of high school freshmen wouldn't know that, but it's not only high school students who get taken in by the dihydrogen monoxide hoax. A few years after this uh, science fair, uh, the city council of Aliso Viejo in Orange County, California, was ready to vote on a measure to ban dihydrogen monoxide from their city until somebody slipped in before they voted on it and explained, it's actually just water. And every so often online, someone will claim, uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll come out with a statement, they'll come out with a claim, you know what, the city water pipes for Castle Rock are filled with dihydrogen monoxide. And somebody will get upset, somebody will become concerned, somebody will have to look into it and issue a statement. You see, we fear what we do not know. We tend to fear what we do not know. Described a certain way, dihydrogen monoxide, water, sounds bad, sounds threatening, menacing, but you can't can't live without it. None of us can live without it. Some people describe God in ways that sound bad, threatening, off-putting, terrible. But when you get to know him, after you've gotten to know him, you wonder, how did I ever live beforehand? We live in an age of seemingly infinite information, but not near enough knowledge Plenty of information, not near enough knowledge, especially when it comes to knowledge of God. There's not nearly enough of that. I don't mean just knowing things about God. I mean knowing God for who he is, knowing God relationally, knowing God better. And when we get to know God, we find that before we might have had a negative misperception of him, but when we get to know him, the reality is unbelievably positive. Is there anything more important than getting to know God? Let's listen to the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. This is Ephesians uh, chapter 1, continuing the, the Pact series. Uh, I'm reading from the NIV. If you have a Bible, uh, if you're there online watching at home, please feel free to follow along. Also, if you don't, that's all right. We have the text here for you. Paul writes, for this reason, I'll review what the reason is in a second. For this reason, raises a question for me in this passage and that is what could be more important than getting to know god what could be more important than getting to know god is there anything you would rather have I mean, think about it, be serious about it for a second is there anything you would rather have than to know the mind of god Is there any way that you would rather be in your life than to reflect the heart of God? What could be more important than getting to know God? All right, now this passage is a prayer that Paul is making uh, for his original readers, the Ephesians, also for us. And uh, as he frequently does, Paul links the content of his prayer to the praise he offers to God earlier in the chapter, which is what Phil uh, talked about last Sunday. Uh, he offers praise to God. He says, look, we were chosen by God. We've been assigned, sealed, and delivered uh, by God, all to the praise of God's glory. And for this reason, Paul says, having heard of the faith and love of the Ephesian church, he continuously thanks God for them, acknowledging God as the author of their faith and their love. But despite his unceasing gratitude, Paul's not satisfied with them yet. And so he prays for them. And what, what is his prayers? That they might know God better. That's, that's what he prays for. You know, you'd you think of all the things Paul could have prayed for them about. This was at the top of his list. That they might know God better. That we might know God better. Know him for who he is. Is there anything more important than that? Let me ask you this question. It's an uncomfortable question, but I've asked it of myself, so I'll put it to you. I'll inflict you with it. How well do you know God? How well would you say you know God? And the follow-up question, do you know him enough? Do you know him as much as you would like to, as well as you would like to? Okay, I'll answer, no, I don't know him as well as I would like to. I don't know him enough, and I've been a pastor for 24 years, for crying out loud. So I'll go first and admit that. But here's here's what's kind of cool. In my experience, the more I get to know God, the more I want to know God better. The more I've gotten to know God, and I've known the Lord since I was a kid, but the more I get to know him, the more I want to know him. And healthy relationships are like that. Like uh, with my, my wife, Angie, uh, we've been married not quite 25 years, and I still want to know her uh, better. She and I took a, a vacation, a little trip into the mountains this weekend, into Vale, and uh, we, just, we just hung out, and we went out to eat, and we spent time together, and we talked, and uh, we just rested. And uh, over the t- course of the time, I got to know her better. We have two sons, Angie and I do, a, a senior and a sophomore in college in Bloomington, Indiana. And uh, last week, our sophomore son, 19 years old, uh, flew out to visit with us, hang out with us for a few days. Uh, he's doing online class, so it doesn't really matter where he is uh, on the planet, as long as he has a you know, can get, get online for his classes, and so he did class with us and hung out, and we enjoyed spending time together. He's 19 years old, I've known him his whole life, and I still enjoy getting to know him better, and his brother, too. Healthy relationships are like that. Brennan Manning is a now-deceased Christian author who said, I want neither a terrorist spirituality that keeps me in a perpetual state of fright about being in right relationship with my heavenly father, and I don't want a sappy spirituality that portrays God as such a benign teddy bear that there's no aberrant behavior or desire of mine that he won't condone. No, I want a relationship with the Abba of Jesus who is infinitely compassionate with my brokenness and at the same time an awesome, incomprehensible an unwieldy mystery. They might be sitting there thinking, well, okay, what's so great about getting to know God? You know, he's infinite. I can only know him so well, right? I'm finite. He's infinite. You know, what's so great about getting to know God? Well, there's two big things. The first is this. When we get to know God, we find hope for the future. When we get to know God, we find hope for the future. This is verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Paul prays for us, his readers, that we might have the insight to grasp the hope of our calling, that is the riches of the glory of God's inheritance. When we get to know God, we find hope for our future. Human beings can live for 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes or so without air. We can't live four seconds without hope. We are hardwired to hope. I grew up in uh, South Carolina, And uh, this is the South Carolina state seal. This here is the motto of the state of South Carolina, doom, spiro, sparrow. Now, as a South Carolina native, I can tell you there is nothing more appropriate than the South Carolina state motto contains the word dumb, spelled D-U-M. That's not an accident. God willed that before the foundations of time were laid. I know I'm a native, I have license. But here's what doom, spiro, Spiro, sparrow. Okay, you know what dihydrogen monoxide was, do you know Latin? No pressure. A bit. Okay. Not that much. <laughs> Doom spiro. Let's everybody learn a little Latin. It's good to know some Latin. Doom spiro spiro means, while I breathe, I hope. While I breathe, I hope. It's 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 hardwired into us. We can't not hope. I hear this at the start of every season on talk radio before the Denver Broncos play their first game. Peyton Manning's retired. Well, that's okay, because we've got Trevor Simeon at quarterback. Trevor Simeon didn't work out. Oh, that's okay. We've got Case Keenum at quarterback. Case Keenum didn't work out. That's okay. We're bringing in Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco wasn't so great anymore. Okay, that's okay. we got Drew Locke now. Drew Locke got hurt. That's okay. we got what's-his-name. Always hoping. Always hoping. But see, here's the thing. Our culture, if you kind of examine it, kind of look at it, kind of listen to it, our culture doesn't offer any basis for hope. Our culture offers no basis for hope. Many calls out there in our culture right now for change. Yes, amen, needed change, overdue change. But where's the hope? Where's the basis uh, for hope? Meaninglessness, we know in abundance, hope we don't. For all its advantages, our society is frayed and has problems so enormous that it's almost like we're about to give up on solving them. I mean, we've got pandemic problems. And coming out of that, we've got economic problems. We've got social problems, and family problems, and government problems, and law enforcement problems, and plain old human stupidity problems. And then after that, there's the final boss, We have a death problem. These problems are enormous and they haunt all of us. And I think we have a growing sense that we can't really solve our problems, either individually or socially. And the people who claim we can solve our problems are either usually selling something or running for something. The truth is that even when we're quiet about it, we're all desperate, even when we deny it. But then, along comes Jesus and steps into the equation. God's work in Jesus Christ addresses our problems of meaninglessness, the problem of evil, and the problem of death. My goodness, in Christ, death is not the end. It's a comma, not a period. We can look forward to a happy, eternal life with God that never ends. And so hope is a real, real reality. It's real for you and me who are in Christ. God has built a bridge from no hope to living hope by resurrecting life in the midst of death. God has built a bridge from no hope to living hope by resurrecting life in the midst of death. And that's a hope that all of us in Christ share. Hope is a life-changing experience, and Paul views God's work in the resurrection as not just a one individual thing, but a cosmic event that's changed the entire course of history. And so he prays that people might know what God's call means for their future and how it affects their present. A lot of times we think, well, what I do in the present affects my future, and well, yeah, that's true, but you know, how we think about our future also affects what we do in our present, Calvin Miller, Christian author I like, said this. He said, the world is poor because her fortune is buried in the sky and her treasure maps are all of earth. Our fortune is buried in the sky but we're looking for a treasure on earth. Tim Keller in his book Making Sense of God gives this illustration. He says, imagine that you have two women, two women of about the same age, uh, the same, um, let see, where am I going? Got to find it. Nope. Did I miss a picture? There they are. So you have two women, and they're the same age, same socioeconomic status, same education, and even the same temperament. And you hire both of them, and you say to each one, okay, I'm going to put you to work on an assembly line. And what you have to do is insert tab A into slot B, and then hand it over to the next person in line. And you need to do this diligently uh, for eight hours every day, five days a week, on and on and on and on. And you put them in the same room uh, with identical lighting, uh, identical temperature, identical ventilation. You give them the same number of breaks every day. It's really boring work. Their conditions are the same in every way except for one difference. So you go to the first woman, and you tell her, in exchange for this work you're doing, at the end of the year, we're going to pay you $30,000. And you go to the second woman, and you say, in exchange for the work that you're doing, at the end of the year, we're going to pay you $30 million. What kind of effect does that have on these two women? After a couple of weeks, the first woman is saying, my goodness, this work is so tedious. This work is driving me crazy. Turns to the second woman says, aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second woman says, no, this is great. This is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I I whistle while I work. What's going on? Well, you have two human beings experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways because of the expectation of the future. Now, Tim Keller's not trying to say that all you need is a really big income. That's not his point. What he wants to say is, what we believe about our future completely controls how we experience our present. What you believe about your future completely controls how you experience your present. We are irreducibly hope-based creatures. And so Paul prays that God's Spirit will continually give wisdom and revelation for life and understanding, And the result is that the eyes of your heart, literally in Greek, the eyes of your heart will receive light by which to see. Paul's praying for the lights to go on inside us so that we know God and understand the hope of our calling and the riches of our inheritance that we've been promised in Christ. So, you get to know God, you have hope for your future. So if you're an old person, if you're an elderly person, don't start each day Uh, Looking at the obituaries. If you're a middle-aged person, don't let yourself slip into boredom or distraction. And if you're a young person, don't give up believing that you can make a God-ordained difference in this broken world that will reverberate into the next world. Jesus is alive because he lives, we hope. Because he lives, we hope. And besides having hope just for the future, when we get to know God, we find power for the present. When we get to know God, we find power for the present. All right, let me ask you a question. When I say power of God, what comes to your mind? What image comes to your mind? Holler out. Big Lou- louder. Big storm. Yeah. What's well, What's that? Miracles, yes. Um, I, I tend to, my mind goes to the glory of creation, like in the, in the Rocky Mountains or the ocean or the stars in the sky. When Paul talks about God's power here, that's not where he goes. Here's what he says, verse 19. His incomparably great power for us who believe, that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of inheritance, and his incomparably great power for those who which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul focuses here on three powerful events when talking about God's power. He talks about the power that was exerted when Christ was resurrected from the dead. And he talks about the power that's displayed in the exalted Christ whose authority over everything and the power that's exercised by Christ over everything for his body the church, the Ephesians, and us. Christ is head over everything. That is, he exercises authority over everything. This man is, was Sam Bronfman. He is the late CEO of the Seagram Company. And one, t- one day, uh, Sam Bronfman entered a crowded conference room, and he was anxious uh, to get on with the meeting, and so he just kind of walked in and plopped down in the nearest chair to the door. And one of his young assistants said, oh, oh, was very sh- scandalized by this. Oh, Mr. Bronfman, Mr. Bronfman, uh, you're supposed to sit at the head of the table. Mr. Bronfman fazed, uh, fixed a, an eye on this young man and said, young man, wherever I sit is the head of the table. You know you've been corrected when a face like that corrects you, right? This head metaphor that Paul is using for Christ uh, implies authority and it implies life. We have life from our head, who is Christ. He also talks about the body, and that's very significant. Christ is head over everything, but in particular, he's head over his body, his people, the church. Christ is present with us in the person of the Holy Spirit So he's spiritually present. I think, yeah, you know, if you believe that, you would acknowledge Christ is spiritually present, but he's also bodily present because we're present. He's present in the church, which is we are his new body. That means that the power of his resurrected body resides in us. That means we live with a new quality of life here and now. It's not something we need to wait for we have this life-giving resurrection power available to us right now. Do you believe that? Elsewhere, Paul says, we are more than conquerors. Conquerors would be pretty cool, but he says we're more than conquerors in Christ, in him who loves us. I looked this up. Statistically, the letter of Ephesians focuses more on words for power than any other New Testament letter. Back in verse 19, Paul alone uses four different Greek words for power, emphasizing God's activity in people's lives. There's power. It's not just you've been saved for the future. Yes, that's true. There's also power for the present. And he wants his readers to know this great power is available for us. The focus on God's power is not some cosmic display of force. It's on God's life-giving power that's available for you and me. Okay, what kind of power are we talking about? Let's brass tacks this. Power, simply defined, is the ability to accomplish things. It's the ability to do stuff. But the power to do what God wants us to do is not the type of power we crave, and it's not the world's view of success. The type of power that God wants for us, God offers us, is not the type of power that we crave, and it's not what the world views as successful. In Colossians, which in some ways is a parallel letter to Ephesians, Paul also prays for that church to be strengthened with all power, and then he goes on to say, so that you may have great endurance and patience. I don't want great endurance and patience. That's not the kind of power I want. The kind of power I want is the ability to levitate my car over someone who's going too slow in the fast lane. The kind of power I want is the kind of power to make the Los Angeles Lakers miss jump shots so that the Denver Nuggets can advance by concentrating very hard through my TV screen. The kind of power I want is the kind of power that will enable me to lose weight without having to eat right or exercise. The kind of power I want is the kind of power to zap people off social media who are foolish so that they can never post again. But that's power about my comfort and convenience. And shockingly, my comfort, and my convenience never seems to be high on God's agenda. <laughs> Maybe you can relate. The power that God offers through Christ is transformation of character. Transformation of character. Changed people who then can change things. Even change our world. Changed people who can change our world. It's happened before. It's happened in this country before. It can happen today. If we take Paul's letter to the Ephesians seriously, the church and its individual members, all of us, occupies a place of spiritual privilege that's astounding. We're intimately involved with the one who embodies and conveys the very fullness of God, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. His church is a worldwide caring community. His church is a worldwide praying community. His church is a worldwide serving community. His church is a worldwide thinking community. His church is a worldwide justice-oriented community. His church is a future-looking community and empowered community life-changing community. And we're part of that. We're invited to that. We're his body. Paul wants us to know God's incomparably great power for us who believe. And so we can't be satisfied with a, a faith that is orthodox but dead. Rich in theory but powerless to transform people's lives. And I'm glad to know that Castle Oaks is a church that doesn't settle for that. I've been in churches that do. But we're not one of them. You're not one of them. That's why Paul prays for this. And he, that he prays for this shows that we should pray for this too. Because ultimately God reveals and God enables and God gives power. And so we should pray for that. When was the last time you prayed for God's power, for yourself or for someone else. Sometimes in church world we don't like the word power because you know we know it can be abused, we can be, power can be used wrongly, but power that is for transformation of character, power that's encased in godly character is a good thing. So when was the last time you prayed for God's power? How might your life be different if you prayed Ephesians 1, 17 to 19 this week and every week? How might Castle Oaks be different if we all prayed verses 17 to 19 each week? We'll never grow to know God the way we ought to if we don't ask God for the types of things that Paul asks for. If we don't, we just slip into playing religious games and relying on our own power. You know, when I was in middle school, my, uh, my family took a trip to Niagara Falls. And I remember it very vividly. It was wonderful. Uh, it was amazing. It was astounding. And we spent several days there and, and looked at the falls from every single angle we, we knew to do. And one time, I remember one of these days, I went into the, the men's restroom in the visitor center at Niagara Falls, and I went to, to wash my hands, I turned on the faucet, and there was just this little drip, 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 trickle. <laughs> drip, drip, tri- I un- unscrewed it more, and it was just, just this little trickle. Just like a stream of little drips, nothing more. And I thought, you're the visitor center at Niagara Falls! <laughs> of all the problems you might have, how is water pressure one of them? Trickle, trickle, trickle. The same way, there's all kinds of power that's available to you and to me and to us through God in Christ. So let's don't settle for our little trickle, our know-how, our strength, our resourcefulness. Let's turn to him. Let's ask him. Let's pray to become a people who are power packed in Christ. Our big idea from this part of Ephesians 1 hey, get to know God. Get to know God. You'll find hope for your future, power for your present. Hope for your future, and power in your present. I'll close with this quote from Phillips Brooks. Christian author who said do not pray for easy lives pray to be stronger people do not pray for tasks equal to your powers pray for powers equal to your tasks then the doing of your work shall be no miracle but you shall be a miracle every day you'll wonder at the richness of life which has come to you by the grace of God can I pray for us Lord God, great and mighty, powerful and good God, thank you for your grace, your goodness, the hope that you provide us, the power that you offer. Thank you, great Lord, that our hope is not a theoretical one, that our hope is not a false one or a dead one, but that our hope is living in your son Jesus I pray for Castle Oaks Covenant that you would bless this body to your kingdom's purpose in advance and that we might leave here today or watching online, we might be changed, transformed for having engaged with you through your word and your spirit. Please receive our worship again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.